Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And guys, we have a great trio of comics for you this week. We have Fear, number 13, Return of Steve Gerber and the Man-Thing. Marvel Spotlight, number 9, continuing the saga of Johnny Blaze, the Ghost Rider. And in a first for the podcast, we have the first of our Marvel Horror Magazines. That's right, kids. Not just a comic, a whole magazine. And that is Dracula Lives, number one. Well, and just for the record on that magazine, um, we are primarily going to be focusing on the original content that was produced new for the magazine. Um, There are some reprint stories in there as well. Um, We are less concerned with those. I barely remember them already. (laughs) <laughs> but first, Trey, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Um, things are good. Uh, as we record this, um, Captain Marvel has uh, been out for basically a weekend. Um, yep. And so, uh, and so I saw that the other day, and I believe you did as well. I yeah. did. Um, and so, yeah, that was a pretty good way to kick off the weekend. Right. Um, so, do you feel completely emasculated and like Brie Larson wants to steal your testicles? Would it be weird if I said yes, but in a good way? (laughs) I'm not sure what the good way is. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's the thing. Is this... It's a Marvel movie. And it's basically, with a few curveballs, following the Marvel movie formula. Like... What is novel about it, I guess, is having a female protagonist, which is long overdue, let's be clear, but there is no reason for anyone to not have fun with this movie if they've enjoyed any of the other Marvel movies. Without getting too spoilery on it, and I think what we'll talk about spoilers further at the end of episodes so people who don't haven't seen the movie yet can kind of tune out, although I think sure. this episode will be coming out two weeks after the the movie's been out in theaters yeah so it will be at a point where there will probably be all sorts of think pieces and uh reviews all over the internet talking about it in fairly specific detail but just to be safe i I never want to be accused of someone who is spoiling a recent movie for someone so what we're gonna do is uh sort of bracket that part of the conversation to the very end of the episode, we will give you clear warning, so if you are not ready to hear that yet, you can stop it and then come back to us once you've seen the movie. Exactly. But we'll share some, you know, surface thoughts straight away. I like the film. I did too. I, I Now, I will say, it's not my favorite Marvel movie. No. But we've got a decade's worth of Marvel movies, so that's, like, I'm... 
so I don't know if I don't know if you do this, James, but uh, I am on a uh, social network called Letterboxd. No, but go ahead. Um, it is uh, a social network for movie watching. It's where you can um, rate, review, catalog, make lists of movies you've liked, um, and I keep a running list on my profile of my personal ranking of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And every time a new one comes out, I go in and I take another look at the list and see whether things have moved around. And as of right now, um, again, we're still within the first weekend of Captain Marvel's release, and so this could change with multiple viewings, but right now, it is coming in at my top five. Interesting. Uh, it, it is at number five right now on my list. Okay. I don't have any kind of ranking, so I can't really say where it falls in the list for me. Although, I do have a few observations. Um, it feel it felt very much like a Marvel Phase 1 film. Yeah. In, especially in that it was taking a lot of time in building the origin. Not just in terms of where the superhero comes from, but who the person is who is that superhero. It definitely felt like, and I think part of that is because it's set in the 90s before Mm -hmm. Iron Man 1 takes place, um, you don't have that sense of, this is a world full of superheroes, so you kind of have, you kind of feel like you have to do a bunch of setup. And I know a lot of the setup for this film was kind of done through the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, at least with the the, the role of the Kree Empire. Sure. Sure. And we do, um, and Ronan the Accuser, but... But you don't have to have seen that movie to see this one. No, no, and... Which was very smart of them. True. Also, another thing that it kind of reminded me of, and we kind of talked about this offline, is in addition to feeling like a Marvel Phase 1 film, it also felt like a 90s film. Yes, it did. Not not even like, you know, it's set in the 1990s, but it kind of has a pacing of a 90s film. Yeah. And you know what triggered that for me? What's that? The car chase with the train. It kind of reminded me of that scene from Spider-Man 2. A little bit of that, but but I something about just the way that sequence was shot, the editing of it, and especially the music. Like the music at that point goes into this really, really like '90s percussive, lots of hi hat kind of action sequence music. Yeah, <clears throat> and and uh, and plus, like you've got young Samuel Jackson there driving the car. Like that, there's a lot that just sort of evokes that era. Like, it almost yep. could have been a sequence out of, I don't know, Speed or something. I su- yeah. And, like, I think both you and I, we watched a lot of 90s action films on television growing up. Sure. Instead of, you know, playing outside and stuff. <laughs> I think both, both of us spent a lot of time um, educating ourselves on film. Sure. Um... But yeah, I definitely got a feel of it, and you made a interesting comparison between another Samuel L. Jackson film, 
where he helps a mysterious blonde amnesiac rediscover her past. Right. Um, and that's uh, the Shane Black movie, Long Kissed Goodnight, with uh, Sam Jackson and Gina Davis, I believe. Um, yeah. Which, um, and which in a bit of irony, I suppose, Shane Black uh, was the uh, writer-director of Iron Man 3. Another movie that a lot of people feel is, I think, one of the worst um, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, which I don't think I agree with at all. I don't. I it, It's sort of in the middle for me. Right. I, I have a hard time calling any movie the worst Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, because yeah. they're all good to me. Yeah. I, I will say, I if I have to, like, put anything below others, which clearly I've done, I have a list, but... Um, there were certain sequels that, because they prioritized franchise building over storytelling, mm-hmm. they tended to be weaker films for me. Iron Man 2, I think, is a weaker film. I could see that. It has a lot of good stuff in it, but that good stuff is going in so many different directions that it doesn't feel cohesive. Meanwhile, I uh, think um, that the Captain America movies, a lot of their film is spent setting up franchise history, but at the same time, I think those are the strongest of the ser- strongest of the cinematic oh, yeah. universe. And because those are never at the expense of storytelling. True, and never at the expense of it being a Captain America movie. Right. Even right. Civil yeah, War. No, I, um, two of those Captain America movies are in my top five. Yeah. Even Civil War, at its essence, even though we have most of the Avengers in that movie, and, you know, Spider-Man. Woo! Spider-Man. Uh, yep. Is, is still, at its essence, a Captain America movie. Captain right. America is the catalyst of the movie. Right. So, good stuff. Yeah, no, I, um... And so, Captain Marvel very much evokes those earlier Marvel films. Um, in particular, I think, the first Iron Man. Um, and I think that's in large part because I have a feeling that Captain Marvel is meant to be the launch of a new phase. As as some of these original actors' contracts are expiring, they are looking to provide us with new characters to sort of drive the cinematic universe and i think she's going to be at the center of that yeah but i think we could get into more speculation at the end of this episode because i think part of that's going to go into spoiler type territory sure sure okay so guys um please stay tuned for our spoilerific discussion of captain marvel but first coming up next we have Fear number 13, right after this message. Now there's one place to get your favorite sci-fi on video. The Columbia House Sci-Fi Hotline. Call now for a great deal on the best sci-fi video collections. There's mind-bending trips to the Twilight Zone. Needle, please. Golden Lasso action with Wonder Woman. Blood-sucking drama on Dark Shadows. Ah! And intergalactic intrigue with Babylon 5. 
Choose your favorite series from the best sci-fi ever made. Your first video is only $4.95 plus delivery. There's Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek The Next Generation, and the original Star Trek. Fascinating. Plus, there's the hot action of the best of Japanese anime, too. And much more. Call the Sci-Fi Hotline now. To get the first video to the series of your choice for only $4.95 plus $3.99 delivery, have your credit card ready and call toll-free 1-800-357-1046. Call now. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Our first comic up this episode is Adventure into Fear number 13, Where Worlds Collide. Cover date on this one is April 1973. Writer is Steve Gerber. Penciler is Val Merrick. Inker is Frank Ball. Colors is Ben Hunt. Letterer is Artie Simic. Editor is Roy Thomas. Our story starts with a group of cultists preparing for some mysterious ritual involving the Man-Thing. But when they open the box container's sacred tome, they find it missing. At the same time, at a local malt shop, Jennifer and Andy Kale tell Jennifer's boyfriend Jackson the story of Fear Number 11. How Jennifer accidentally summoned a demon who fought the Man-Thing and was only defeated when she burned her grandfather's spellbook. The Boris Jackson scoffs at the Kale's story and tells them he's going off to play guitar in that same swamp. Jennifer and Andy return to the home of their grandfather, the cult leader we saw at the beginning of the story, and confess the destruction of the book. The old wizard is not mad at them, however, and tells them about how the nearby swamp is actually a dangerous convergence of mystical forces. Suddenly afraid for Jackson, Jennifer and her family take off for the swamp. They find the teen youth, but he has already been possessed by a demon and uses his demonic powers to open a portal that sucks in the Kales and the spying Man-Thing. They find themselves in a strange dimension where the Man-Thing is confronted with mirrors showing reflections of the creature, except one mirror which shows the human form of Ted Salas. As the creature touches the mirror, he is turned into Ted Salas once more. Ted Salas is then confronted by Throg, the demon from last issue, who makes a tantalizing offer for the confused scientist. Throg produces Ted's late fiancée, the treacherous Ellen, and promises Ted that he can retain his human form, and the lovely Ellen, if he but performs one task for Thog. Slay the Kales! Ted rejects the bargain out of hand, turning himself back into the Man-Thing, shattering the false Ellen, and almost burning the life out of the possessed Jackson, before Jennifer realizes that the teen fails to burn, meaning this whole strange dimension is only an illusion. Upon her realization, the dimension melts away, and the demon flees. Jennifer's grandfather is concerned, however, about a seeming link between the creature and his granddaughter and what it may pertain for her future. So this was a fun one. It was a lot of fun. Um, for one thing, uh, I really, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I guess we've uh, retconned Jennifer from two issues ago into uh, longtime Marvel character Jennifer Kale. Well, I think she was always Jennifer. She was Kale. called Jennifer. Was... She was called Jennifer. Did she get called? Did, did we know her last name in the last issue? We might not have. You're right, but that was her first uh, appearance. They last were Je- issue. Yeah, they were Jennifer and Andy, but I don't think yeah. we ever got a last name. No, 
But they've returned for this issue, and they are given the names Jennifer and Andy Kale. Yeah, which we will be seeing a lot more of her over the years. Yeah, they always say that kale is an important part of a healthy diet. <laughs> um, so we have another mystic occult text. Yeah, and we'll talk, um, I think, later in the podcast how um, we're kind of getting sick of seeing mystical occultists. But I mean, here I, I think all of these works. all these cultists should. I think all of these groups of cultists should maybe just start a book club. Right, you know, the, and you can get a book for as low as five dollars a book. Cancel anytime. <laughs> Sorry, that's the um, Warner Media Occult Book Club. Oh, right, right, right. Um, um, go ahead. Yeah, just I'm thinking that uh, sort of looking back over it, this is very much the type of Man-Thing comics that I... This is what I think of when I think of that character. Yeah, Steve Gerber's really turning out some fun stuff here. Uh, we get our first mention of this being the Crossroads of Reality. Yep. Yep, they don't quite use that name yet, but we've got portals into other dimensions. And the stuff with the portals in the other dimensions is a lot of fun. It is. Now, I will say, visually, it's probably not on the level of what some of the early Doctor Strange comics did. Uh, But it's still really well done. Yeah, I think part of it is the artwork is a little bit lacking. But right, it, that, that's what I mean, is just visually. Yeah, it could, you know, it's not quite, you know, Steve Ditko, trippy, dimensional hopping trippiness. Right. Uh, but I like the I like the sequences with the Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. Like, I thought that was an effective way to do that transformation. Right. I like the weird outfit that um, Ellen turns up in. Yeah. Uh, the treacherous Ellen, who I really did not expect us to see again. Yeah, no, no. Um, and of course, uh, we've got uh, uh, Thog, the Nether Spawn. Yep. Um, Overmaster of uh, Sominus, uh, which means we'll be seeing more of him. Which I'm surprised by, because you know he seemed like a generic demon type. But apparently, no, he's going to be a recurring villain. Yeah, he's going to show up in uh, this book. He's going to show up in uh, The Defenders. And I think he's going to show up in Ghost Rider. Are we going to talk about Defenders on this show? I think there are at least certain storylines we might want to look at. Oh, man. I've not ever read any Defenders stuff, so that should be interesting. I- I'm a fan. It's it's Some of that early Defenders stuff is fun. Nice, nice. Um, and and they tended to battle more monstrous occult mystic kind of threats. Yeah, and speaking of the shock of seeing Ellen, I wasn't expecting to see Ted Salas in the story either. Right? No, that's uh, it, it. It was a clever way of giving the character more of a voice in the middle of the story. Right, like having a conscious. Um, heroic moment from the man thing besides you know 
just the kind of obscure justice like we saw in last um the last man thing we story we talked about the one with the sheriff and the uh, fugitive in a swamp right but that he is given the choice between remaining human or saving these people that he doesn't really know um by making that a conscious choice it makes him a more heroic character right and I think interesting where before when he last saw the Kales, he was kind of thinking like, should I kill these children or not? But now it's like, no, these children are my friends. Right. Well, and by the last page, clearly there is some sort of connection between the man thing and Jennifer. Right. Which her grandfather is somewhat disturbed by. Mm hmm. He's like, oh crap, what has my granddaughter gotten herself into? Because at the beginning of the story, he realized, like, when he's having his little occultist meeting, they talk about the fact that the man thing is not just some random scientific accident. Right, that he is somehow bound to this particular spot because of whatever powers it contains. Right. So, and he realizes that, oh, my granddaughter plays a part in this destiny as well. Which, mm -hmm. uh, as, as a father, I can understand how that would be worrisome. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I also thought it was sort of a nice moment at the end that you think that Man-Thing is killing the boyfriend, but then it turns out that it's that his powers are only affecting the demon. It's definitely a story that I want more of. I think yeah. I think Man Thing, Tomb of Dracula, and honestly, if Werewolf by Night can get its act together, right. are our strongest titles right now. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Um, and and you know we're just now settling into the sort of most notable creative teams for these books. Right. So, like, like Man-Thing is only just now becoming the book that people know it as. Like, it is just now sort of hitting its stride with Gerber writing. Um, Tomb of Dracula, as we talked about last time, is just now sort of finding its way with its new creative team. So I, I think we're heading toward really sort of the heyday of when these books were doing their best work. Although I did notice something um, after our, our recording last time. You know, in Tomb of Dracula, they don't really mention the fact that uh, Frank and Rachel are in love with each other. And I'm curious right. if that's something that... Marv Wolfman kind of decided I'm going to ignore for right now or if it's just you know they didn't get a chance to talk about it, that issue yeah oh and I think part of it might be that things move so quickly in that issue because like I say you've got a panel of them wrapping up the previous issue and then suddenly the telegram brings them back to London yeah that, so I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking that that may be at least partly due to pacing. Yeah, but I, I thought that interesting after the fact. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I will say with with 
the man thing issue it might be one of my favorite written man thing issues that we've looked at just in terms of like the gerber writing but visually it's not as effective as past issues no i think last time with man thing with well last time we had the core man thing top story we had was it rich buckler doing artwork I think so. which a much stronger artist than val um merrick which i feel right. like i'm saying that last name wrong but we'll see and i guess what what disappoints me is that the concept has so much visual potential with the demons erupting out of the swamp and the sort of alternate dimension that Thog is in and all, all of that stuff has a lot of possibilities. And I don't feel like they were explored the way they could have been. Yeah. But it is still a lot of fun to read and the the art is by no means bad. It is perfectly serviceable and does its job in telling the story. Yeah, it does. Sorry, I just discovered the letters page. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, there's a letter here, here saying, Dear Roy, I must protest the editorial decision to make Man-Thing into a supernatural series. Man-Thing was conceived in a scientific atmosphere. The Adam story brought in S.H.I.E.L.D. and AIM, and that line was continued in Kazar. And Jerry's fantastic story in Fear Number 10 was scientific, as opposed to supernatural story. Marvel doesn't need a series about a monster fighting off magical demons and threats. From what I've read of the original Heap, that's what he did. And National Swamp Thing is already in supernatural storylines. Marvel should try to be different. And a model I would suggest is Jerry's story from issue 10. Jerry's story had two themes. One of the man thing trying to recall his lost humanity, and a second of how people react to the chance meeting of him. What I'm suggesting is a very difficult storyline, perhaps requiring the return of Jerry or or the assignment of Mike Friedrich, or Archie Goodwin as writer. The supernatural storyline is safe, easy, and time-tested formula of heroes and villains. It's too, almost too easy for Marvel. Brian Earl Brown, Mishkawaka, Indiana. Mish- Mishawaka? Hmm. Oh, just what's funny is uh, just opposite that in the second column is another letter saying the exact opposite, that the issue 11 was a great improvement over the Kazar stories and the fear number 10 story, which I would agree with, honestly. Sure. I, the thing I appreciate about the Kazar story is the way that it brought man thing into the Marvel universe. That is the best thing about it. Um, yes. Like I will, I will never complain about a story that has man thing fighting aim beehive suits. Yeah. But, just purely in terms of storytelling, give me the kids playing with the occult tome any day. Right, and I think our friend Brian here is in for quite a bit of a surprise when it comes to later Steve Gerber stories. I don't Absolutely. think, yeah, I don't think he, I don't think those stories really be called safe. And even in editorial, they'll say safe, easy, time tested, sheesh. Tell that Steve Gerber, who's been knocking his brains out to make this series different. But we know more or less what you mean, Brian, and we're taking your comment seriously. It isn't, and never was, Steve or Roy's intention to make Man-Thing a purely supernatural series. Stories like the ones in Fear Number 10 and 12-2, by the way, are also a large part of what we have in mind for the future. 
the way we see it, Man-Thing is one of those once-in-a-lifetime characters that suited almost every type of story, with the probable exception of space opera and sword and sorcery, which, I don't know, I think Steve Gerber could pull it off. Before we're through, we'll have it touched on almost all of them. And meanwhile, we're trying hard to do a decidedly distinctive kind of supernatural story. We'll think you'd be both shocked and pleased by some of the developments in the store. Enough said? I think I think they acquit themselves nicely in that response. I mean, they're right that the whole idea of Man-Thing is sort of bigger than any one genre. Yeah, and um, I think Steve Gerber saw the um, almost every type of story with the probable exception of space operas and sword and sorcery as a challenge. Yes. <laughs> yes, so, um... I think that's correct. <laughs> I, I'm actually kind of surprised that we've never had Man-Thing team up with the Guardians of the Galaxy. I feel like, I, I feel like they did that in the Guardians of the Galaxy cartoon. Man-Thing makes an appearance. Okay, I could see that. But, um... I don't know. I just really like this issue. It was a lot of fun, and I, I really... I did, too. Yeah. I look forward to seeing more from Steve Gerber with this title. Especially now that it seems like we're settling into something of a supporting cast. Right. Right. Which I think that's going to help the book a lot, because one of the difficulties with Man-Thing stories is you have a lead character who is not able to communicate in conventional ways. True. And, and so having having a character who is in some way in sync with him or in tune with him can help with that. And I also think something we discussed a lot in the show is that the stronger of these stories, the ones that make us want to come back and read more have strong supporting casts. You know, Werewolf by Night is at its strongest when it leans on a supporting cast that they've really underutilized up to this point. Tomb of Dracula is strongest not because of Dracula, although we love Dracula. It's because we want to see what's going on with Frank and Rachel and everyone else. And Sure. Every every comic needs its Buck Cohen. I think every comic just needs Buck Cohen. I mean, fair. I I would not object to that. But in in the absence of the real deal, they should have someone like him. I think Buck Cohen should be like the Agent Coulson of the Marvel uh, Supernatural Universe. <laughs> Just show up and be like, ah, you know, I've got this this guy. This, he's a bit hairy, but I think he, you and he should work together. I'm like, yes. See, it's funny you went to Coulson, and I was about to say he should be the Rick Jones of the horror line. <laughs> Wait, is Phil Coulson the Rick Jones of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Oh, totally. Wow. Because he's the fanboy. Yeah, and yet actual Rick Jones hasn't shown up yet. Which is a bit surprising considering how important he was to the actual Marvel Universe back in the day. Right, right. Trey, I think we've exhausted our our responses to Man-Thing. I I think so. So we will set Man-Thing aside until the next time we have a new issue, but... I think this book is very much on the right track. I'm enjoying it. I love the yep. Steve Gerber madness. Yeah, so um, we're going to take a break, 
and then come back with the first issue of the Marvel magazine, Dracula Lives. Ooh. Dracula. The story of the greatest lover who ever lived, died, and lived again. Dracula, starring Frank Langella, with Laurence Olivier. Dracula, rated R. And we're back to Tomb of Ideas with our first magazine. Um, this is Dracula Lives number one. And just to give you a little bit of background here, um, Dracula Lives was one of several magazines published by a company called Magazine Management, which was a corporate sibling of Marvel Comics. But the staffing was pretty much all Marvel guys. Um, writers included uh, Roy Thomas, uh, Steve Gerber, Gardner Fox. Um, artists were people like uh, John Bashima, uh, Dick Giordano, uh, Rick Buckler, um, Jim Starlin. Uh, so the, it was edited initially by Roy Thomas and then later by Marv Wolfman. So it's very much a Marvel property, even though it was technically under the umbrella of magazine management. Um, and one of the things that sets it apart from the comics line is that because it was published as a magazine, it did not fall under the guidelines of the comics code, which meant that they could include moderate profanity, um, sometimes partial nudity, definitely more graphic violence um, than their uh, comics counterparts. Right. And um, you can usually spot these by the Curtis Publishing logo at the upper left-hand corner. Um, Curtis was the name of Martin Goodman's magazine company. Um, that was right. the, the name that magazine management published under. And if you've ever read Sean Howe's uh, his, uh, Secret History of Marvel Comics, um, he kind of talks about how the magazine people kind of look down on the comics people. And then the comics people try to get into the magazine business and they're like, what the heck are you doing? You're supposed to write little funny books. Right. And, and really these magazines are primarily collections of comics. Um, they're in black and white. Um, there is some limited partial coloring. Like sometimes you'll have color elements in otherwise black and white pages. Usually red. Um, usually red. Although, and we will get there, uh, when the, uh, I think it's tales of the zombie is the, zombie magazine um that one used lots of green but but yeah for for dracula lives you can expect to see a lot of red yeah and this isn't the only magazine that we'll be talking about we're gonna be seeing a lot more of these and we might have to have a discussion at some point about how we're gonna cover these in an episode because these magazines right. are hefty little beasties they are and, and again they are at least partially reprinted material and like i said earlier we're not really covering the reprint stuff because that would just be too much. Um, we're trying to focus on the original new content. Um, yeah. But even then, you're looking at sometimes three or four stories per magazine. Right. It's, 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 a, it's a bit much sometimes. But we will figure that out. If that means maybe only doing one issue of a comic alongside a magazine or something. We'll, we'll figure out a balance to make it work. Yeah. And we will also hopefully hear from you guys and, and uh, how much 
you want to hear of this stuff to, to help us see what balance you want. Yeah, please, please let us know what works best for you. Because really, guys, we're here doing this for you. And because well, we've been trapped in we're, we're Right, we're here doing this because a, a creepy monster person locked us down here. But our instructions from the creepy monster person were to do this for you. Alright, so shall we look at our first story? Let's do. The first segment of Dracula Lives is titled Poison of the Blood. It is written by Jerry Conway with pencils by Gene Colan. The inker is Tom Palmer, letterer is John Costanza, and the editor is Roy Thomas. Dracula arrives in Manhattan, seeking a man named Jackson Cubbard, the founder of Mysticology Incorporated, and possibly the reincarnation of the Count's old enemy, Cagliostro. But first, the vampire must feed. However, to Dracula's surprise, his chosen victim is a drug addict. The effect of the narcotics overwhelms Dracula, and he blacks out. When he regains consciousness, he's been locked in jail with another addict. Still thirsting, Dracula feeds again and transforms into a bat to escape. Later, in Greenwich Village, he meets a mysticologist named Madeline Rogers, who agrees to take him to meet Cupboard. Along the way, Dracula begins to suffer from withdrawal due to the addict's narcotics-infused blood. They hail a cab so that he won't have to walk, and Dracula thinks back to his voyage by ship from London to New York. The pair arrive at the mysticologist's headquarters, just in time for the completion of a not-quite-sacrificial rite. Dracula makes his way to Cupboard's private quarters to confront the mystic alone. Furious that Cupboard is a charlatan, only pretending at being Cagliostro, Dracula drains him completely. But the screams draw police, who open fire as Dracula exits the building. Unfazed, Dracula takes flight and returns to the ship where his coffin awaits. So, th- I thought this was a good story. Yeah, yeah, th- there's not a lot to it in terms of actual plot, um, but in terms of setting the tone and setting the mood of the magazine, this is pretty good stuff. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was really interesting to have Dracula feed on a drug addict. And for the time, this very much sets it apart from the uh, Tomb of Dracula comic book, which would not have really touched on drugs in this way. Really, yeah, like the idea of Dracula biting someone and as he bites them, seeing the needle fall out of their pocket. Right, right. I mean, at this point, this was still, you know, very special issues of Spider-Man sort, right. of, sort of deal. And even that um, was pills. Harry Osborn, ta- Harry Osborn taking nonspecific pills. Right. This is definitely, hey, this guy's shooting up. Yeah. And we get not one, but two. Yeah. Yeah, we get two junkies. Uh, 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 uh. Huh. Fairly frank, if not realistic, depictions of the effects of drugs and their withdrawal. Yeah, I mean, Dracula's a bit of a lightweight. Right. Well, and he goes from high to in withdrawal in a single night. Yeah. Which, I mean, having seen people in withdrawal before, it's not quite that instantaneous 
Right. Well, and I mean, we could probably blame some of it on vampiric metabolism. True. Also, what does it say that the first person he finds to feed on in New York City is a junkie? I mean, I think it says something about the way even people in New York thought of New York in the 1970s. True. This is pre-Giuliani New York. Right. Right. Which definitely is a different beast than it is today. And frankly, mid-70s Greenwich Village, Dracula with his, uh, like, old-fashioned dress shirt and black and red cape is not out of place at all. (laughs) You've got a point there. But yeah, it was a, it was fine. Um, I now I want someone to tell the story of Dracula fighting the actual Cogliostro. True, although the first thing that comes to my mind when you mention Cogliostro is Castle of Cogliostro, the yeah. Lupin the Third movie. Right, right. Which was a Miyazaki film. Right. I'm not going to tell you what my first thought was when I saw the name Cogliostro. Okay. Um, okay, fine. I thought of Spawn. I thought of Todd McFarlane's Spawn, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's no shame. Cogliostro, and Cogliostro was the medieval Spawn who was co-created by Neil Gaiman. There's no shame in that, Trey. Let's all shame really? him. Shame, 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 shame. No shame at all, Trey. I I, I see how it is. <laughs> I regret nothing. <laughs> so, should we move on to our next story? Let's do. Um, because, again, uh, there's just not a lot of plot to this one. The art is very well done. Um nice use of contrast in the black and white um and very much stylistically in keeping with what we've seen in tomb of dracula yeah it's it's nice seeing gene colon's artwork kind of i guess naked as it were yeah which you know it 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 gives points in the favor you realize that his work isn't getting as muddied as perhaps some other artist work is getting by coloring at this point. Right. It tells us that um, Colin and Palmer are a good uh, match as far as pencilers and inkers. Right. That, that one is not sort of overshadowing the other. Right. They, they definitely work very well together. Th- this is not an instance of a DC artist going back over Jack Kirby's work because he didn't match the house style. No. No. Thank goodness. All right. Um, so let's uh, take a look then at our next segment. Yep. So uh, segment number two is titled Suffer Not a Witch. This one is written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Alan Weiss, and the inker is Dick Giordano. In the year 1691, Dracula broods while his vampire brides debate his state of mind. He angrily dismisses them, and muses about the sort of willing partner he would prefer. The scene shifts to America, where Charity Brown is drawn into the twilight 
by a mysterious voice. As she dances, Dracula reveals himself, communicating mentally across the oceans. Eager to join him, Charity accepts his mark, the sign of the bat, until they can be united. The vision of Dracula fades, but Charity continues to dance, and is secretly watched by Goodman Alden, who raised Charity when her parents died ten years before. Alden tries to assault Charity, but she is able to escape to the village. However, thanks to Alden, the villagers already suspect Charity of being a witch, and Dracula's mark only confirms their suspicions. After a show trial, she is thrown in jail and awaits execution. Far away, Dracula speeds toward the Americas, by carriage and then by ship. He makes the last leg of the journey in bat form, but arrives too late to save the girl. Instead, Dracula takes out his anger by killing Alden. Then, as a final revenge, he bites and hypnotizes a woman named Tituba, setting a trap that will later send the village of Salem into chaos. This one was really good. Roy, Roy Thomas is very good at writing Dracula stories. Yeah, I... I love Gene Colan's artwork, but right. uh, the artwork here by Alan Wise is no slouch. Uh, no, well, and it, I think it's very good at capturing a different time period for Dracula. Like, he, he looks... A, I mean, he's ageless, but, like, the style is a little bit different. You know, he, he's wearing his hair a little differently. Um, his his clothing is a little bit different. Yeah, this is definitely young stud Dracula. Right. I mean, this is Dracula sort of out looking for a girlfriend. Right. This is romantic lead Dracula. This is 1979 Franklin Jella Dracula. Ooh. And... If you've never seen if you've never seen the 1979 Dracula movie that stars Frank Langella, um, it is what I like to refer to as the version of Dracula you, you see on the cover of a romance novel. Okay. Like he he bursts into the room and the wind blows his hair back and his shirt is open to the chest, you know. Yeah. Although seeing him now, it's hard to imagine Frank Langella as a sex symbol. Oh yeah, no. I actually really like that Dracula movie and that between the Broadway production and then the movie that came after it, he was very much a sex symbol in that period. Okay. This would have been before he was Skeletor. And I suppose speaking of um well, sex, um we're definitely getting uh with Charity's Dance in the Moonlight a lot more suggestion of nudity than we would have gotten in, say, like a Tomb of Dracula comic. Right. Like, I mean, she's in a nightgown for pretty much all of it, but she is drawn in ways that do not leave much to the imagination. No, it's it's a bit like a 90s comic book artist in that way. Right, right. Um, I also enjoyed that... Uh, the the sparing use of red uh, on page 21 was to color the moon and the book of common prayer yeah which is an interesting linking between the two well it's the thing that she's going toward and the thing she's leaving behind i guess ooh that is good 
Um, speaking of what's good about this artwork, the faces. Yeah. The faces are really good. I mean, I'm not sure. Which I've already, I've already talked about that I like the way Dracula is drawn, but Charity also has some really great close-up expressions. And we also see it with the villagers as well. Even, like, yeah. um, Goodman Al- Alden, their um, faces... The close-up... Look to the close-up of Goodman Alden in the middle of page 23. Yeah. In the movie, he would totally be played by Sean Connery, right? Eh, maybe not Sean Connery. Okay. I, I, I'm not, not sure... 19, not 1970s Sean Connery, but, like... Okay. Like, 1992 Sean Connery. I don't know. I think instead um, we should go with... Oh, goodness. I'm blanking on his name. Which, when you figure out who what's I'm his... talking about, you're going to, you know, think I'm a horrible oh, what's, human. What's what's he in? Um, oh, no. I'm not going to tell you what he's in. Because then okay. you'll really get mad at me for not remembering his name. <laughs> I actually kind of... Okay. I actually kind of like the idea of Gene Hackman playing this character. I can see that. I can see that a lot. Yes, and Gene Hackman was the name, to my shame, that I could not remember. <laughs> How do you forget what the name... What's that? What's that? There's no shame here? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> How does one forget... The name of the greatest criminal mastermind on the face of the earth. <laughs> oh, yes. Shame me, lovely listeners. Shame but, me. But yeah, um, really great facial expressions. Uh, you're right that that uh, that the, the sort of uh, villain, Alden, in particular, has some really great expressions, especially at uh, in the sequence before. Uh, during and immediately after uh, his attack. Yeah. And, you know, they're not really shying away from the fact that um, there is an attempted rape here. No, not at all. Um, and it, Again, it, and it's I, not explicit in the way that a modern reader might consider it. But for this time period, um, it's, again, it, it's fairly... It is very clear what's happening. Yes. And it's it, it's it's frightening. Yeah. The, yeah. The, scene, the scene is frightening. So is the page that follows where she's like mobbed by the villagers. Yeah. And I think here we do have to talk about how sucky Dracula and Charity's plan is here. Mm-hmm. Like... I'm going to mark you with a bat very near the neckline of the bosom of your uh, dress where, you know, only the slightest tug will show it to everybody and mark you as a witch. Right. It's just, it's asking for trouble. I guess if he, if he was on his way to America anyway, he could have just waited and done that after he picked her up. Right. Do you need to mark the woman that you're going to um, claim as your own in order? I don't. I. I don't know. Some kind of mark of love or something. 
Yeah, well, I just so I, I like, think I what we're what we're getting here. What what happens is kind of a even though the the twist at the end is that it's uh, Salem witch. It's the lead up to the Salem witch trials. Um, yes. It's also kind of like a riff on Young Goodman Brown, the Nathaniel Hawthorne story. Okay. Um, where uh, a person, where, where Young Goodman Brown uh, goes off into the woods with the devil and and it, all of this stuff happens, sort of calls his faith into question. Um, but but that that sort of very old sort of tradition of going into the woods and the devil marks you. Okay. Um, and and so here, it's not the devil that marks anyone; it's Dracula. Um, and and there's they even okay. sort of play with that when when he confronts Alden later, um, which I'm not I'm not gonna lie. This was a really great like entrance line. You asked for the devil. He was too busy stoking his fires in Europe, but he sent me in his stead. That is pretty good. Which is actually, which is actually sort of the weird thing about the stories in this issue is that Dracula's kind of the hero of these stories. Definitely more so than he is in Tomb of Dracula. Yeah, like he is much more of the antihero. Which I think is a as good a time as any to talk about page twenty six. Um, right when he finds Charity hanging. Right. The expression on that bat's face. It's it's so sad. I, it is so sad. And, you know, I wouldn't expect a bat to communicate so much emotion. Yeah, but it's all about the eyes, I think. And the way yeah. the mouth is opened. But, and then that next page... Where, where again... We would not probably get this as explicitly in one of the color comics, but we get a very graphic depiction of the hanging. Which, I think a bad, a point against this, these two pages face each other. Right. So That should have been a page turn. It should have been a page turn, but it isn't. Because I think that shock... I mean, you get you know what's what he's about to see if you've read any kind of story of Puritan um, New England, and you mm-hmm. see that expression on the bat's face. You know what's happening, but experiencing and you've it as already a page, seen them, and you've already seen them preparing the gallows in the background of another panel. Yeah, and you know that it's a race against time. Even though it's not expressly said that it's a race against time, you feel like Dracula is racing to save the woman he loves. But... Right. It's so much better with a page turn. Yeah, and I I just... I feel like it's one of those things where because this was uh, for a magazine and so it was more of an anthology the people writing and drawing these stories would not have as clear a sense of where the page turns would be. Yeah. It, it, it definitely but, works. But that, that's, that's on the editors, that that should have been a page turn. Right. 
because I don't know how you read comics, but you know, when I turn the page, my eyes kind of sweep the whole page. Yep. So Charity's death on page 27 would have been fairly evident to me. Yeah. Also, while we're talking about art, I really, really love this kind of, like, I don't even know what to call It's not not a splash, but it's like a two-thirds of a page panel of just Dracula staring at us with this sort of montage of images behind him. Page we're looking at. It's the, the very last page of the story. Oh, yes. 30. That is... That is really good, and like the twisting. It's gorgeous. It, you know what it looks like? It looks like the cover to a Castlevania game. Or um, Curse of Strahd. Yeah. For our D&D fans. We know you're out there, and we, and we appreciate <laughs> you. But, um, but yeah, no, that that is just... I want more of that. <laughs> it's really, really good. And I guess here's a good point for us to talk about Dracula's Vengeance here, because mm-hmm. it is delicious. Yeah. Well, because it, it sort of retroactively makes him responsible for the events of the what we think of as the story of the Crucible. Yeah. The Salem Wish Trials. Right, right. Although now I'm wondering... Was Charity Brown an actual person? I don't think so. Like I like I say, I think the name Brown is probably alluding to young Goodman Brown. Okay, that that makes that does make sense. With charity and good being similar words. Yeah. But yeah, his his vengeance on the people of the town is rather horrific. Oh yeah, yeah. But also sort of deliciously indirect. Yeah. Like, with with the exception of Alden, he does not go after them directly. Instead, he just leaves this sort of seed of chaos in their midst. Yeah. And then we get an article by Marv Wolfman. Well, no, sorry. that The article is not by Marv Wolfman. I'm sorry. It's oh. the editorial article where they talk about why they're doing a Dracula magazine. Right, it's the the mission statement for why do Dracula lives when they already have a Dracula comic. Right, and it the the one bit of interesting information I find here is apparently um, Martin Goodman was the one who had the idea of doing a Dracula magazine. Interesting, and that eventually became uh, Tomb of Dracula. Right, because they were going to do that as a magazine first, because that would allow them to get around the code entirely. Right. And now that Tomb of Dracula has proven their success, and they are launching a Dracula magazine, we now have Dracula Lives. Right. Which, I guess now is a good point as any to point out the little uh, movie stills they use as introductions to the stories yeah it's got kind of like it gives me a vibe sort of the magazine version of watching horror host segments like it's that kind of interrupting the scary stuff with a, a sort of a goofy joke they don't always land most of them don't but they they kind of break up the the scary stuff with bits of humor 
which they're obviously movie stills from um previous well monster movies of the yeah. horror films of the time and it reminds me a lot of another series that marvel did which basically the whole comic is stills from movies with funny dialogue put on top and that of course is monsters to laugh with right um which that i think that idea by itself doesn't work for a whole magazine but i think interspersed between stories i think is is probably the most effective use of that idea yeah i've i definitely looked at some issues of monsters to laugh with and i'm like wow i feel bad for the kid who dropped a quarter on this right um and they sort of looking ahead because i've read some of these they they use the same gimmick with uh tales of the zombie too oh okay well, that's something to look forward to yeah um and uh skipping ahead a little bit um so we do also have uh a little bit of a promo for monsters unleashed at the at the end of that editorial um 76 glorious pages for only 75 cents yep and we'll be talking about that issue next next episode yeah which um I haven't looked to see what specific uh, stories are in it, but it should be some good stuff. Um, they're also already teasing Tales of the Zombie. Um, in the very bottom corner of that ad, it also says, keep your eyes peeled for the zombie coming soon. I am looking forward to it. Absolutely. Speaking of the zombie, uh, um, we should probably talk about... Uh, there are uh, two reprint stories in here. Yes. Actually, is it three reprint stories? Um. Yes, three reprint stories. Wow. Yeah, three reprints. Yeah. Zombie, uh, Ghost of a Chance, and Fright. Yeah. Which, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I saw Fright in another uh, magazine under a different title and different artwork. (laughs) I mean, it's a fairly boilerplate story, I think. Like, it's one that's been told more than once. No, it reminds me of that segment from the Tales from the Crypt movie. Oh! Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The guy running the Home for the Blind. Yep. And he abuses the, uh, I guess tenants and as a result they place him in a hallway filled with razor sharp spikes on the walls and then they unleash his dog who they've been starving on him and the dog Mm -hmm. rips him to shreds yep sorry for giving giving away this um you know story from a movie from 1972 to you yeah we we don't do spoiler warnings on things from the 70s Although I really recommend it, uh, that movie because it's good stuff. Yeah, Tales from the Crypt and its uh, follow-up, um, Vault of Horror, are both very good. Both very good. Uh, um, and also in the middle of this magazine, speaking of older things, there is an honest to goodness Charles Atlas ad. 
Yes, there is. With the with the, the comic strip and everything. Which you know, I should I should like mail away for one of those things and see what I get. <laughs> I wonder what actually is at 115 East 23rd Street now. We can check it out on Google Maps after the show. <laughs> it's, um, it's probably Trump Tower. Right, right. Um, we also get so, a little. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go for, go ahead. We also get an article from Marv Wolfman. Yes, um, and that's the uh, is that the one about the history of Dracula adaptations? Yes. Yeah, that it, it's it's a pretty good read and is really fairly comprehensive. I mean, he he goes through um sort of the Dracula the Dracula that appeared on Broadway that Lugosi starred in um and the Universal movies. He he doesn't actually get into Nosferatu, but that may have been because at that point that movie was really difficult if not impossible to come by. Well, he does mention I guess having seen it, and he's not very complimentary right. towards it. Right. Which I think a lot of modern film horror fans would be kind of shocked by. This yeah, I mean, I I would say that it's not my favorite. Like, it's even among silent films of that era, it's paced rather slowly at times. But but I think visually it's very impressive. Yeah, he's not complimentary of Count... Um, uh, is it Orlock? Orlock. Orlock, thank you. I think it's Orlock. Yeah, Count Orlock's yeah. look, uh, which I think is one of the strongest things about that film to the point where it's been copied in other vampire lore. Oh, for sure. Like, that's become a whole subcategory of vampires now. Yeah, and I think my um, Vampire the Masquerade uh, playing friends could probably tell you what kind those are, but, but gosh, if I could. Um. Of course, he also is not very complimentary to Dracula's daughter, which I think is actually one of the stronger Universal sequels. Yeah. He's also somewhat dismissive of Son of Dracula, but that's just because Lon Changer sucks. Well, that's not a very good movie. Um, I assume not. It stars Chain- Lon Chain Jr. He was miscast. As is he is, as you would say of any film that... St- stars Lon Chaney Jr. I like the Wolfman, okay? I mean, the makeup's fantastic. The supporting cast is great. Lon Chaney Jr.'s a dog, no pun intended. No. (laughs) He also is very good in Of Mice and Men. I've not seen that. I mean, I've seen other versions of Mice and Men. I've not seen the one with Lon Chaney Jr., but anyway, um, so yeah, he, he works his way through the universal titles that Dracula appeared in. Um, he looks at, uh, he shifts gears pretty quickly to Hammer, which are sort of the next major era of Dracula movies, um, and talks about, it's fairly complimentary to Christopher Lee, although um, doesn't seem to think that Lee looks much like the Dracula of the novels. Um, mm-hmm. although Lugosi didn't either, so I don't understand why that's a problem. Yeah. I think it'd be actually, interesting to he, see... He says, he says that Lee looks less like the Dracula of the novels than John Carradine, who played Dracula in some of the Universal sequels. The joke of that is, 
of the actors who had played Dracula up to that point, Carradine was the only one who had a mustache, which is one of the key things that's described in the novel. Which I think it'd be interesting to see what he would have thought of, say, like Gary Oldman's Dracula. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so, one one thing that did stand out to me in this this lengthy article is he uh, he notes that there is even a rumor of a Christopher Lee non Hammer Dracula film that is reportedly the definitive adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel. If this proves to be true, it will be a long overdue movie and would make the perfect 80th anniversary gift to Dracula. Um, spoiler warning. It was not the definitive adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel. Um, it, it is a film titled Count Dracula. Um, it was directed by uh, Jesus Franco, uh, who is often credited as Jess Franco, because Italian directors like to pretend they're American to sell more movies over here. Um, and it's fine. It's not great. It's not as good as the Hammer movies. It's definitely not an accurate adaptation of the novel. The only thing that makes it closer to the novel is that Christopher Lee was allowed to grow a mustache for it. Okay, I think I've seen pictures from this. Yeah, yeah. Like, that is the best thing about it, is that Christopher Lee looks the part. But, uh, other than that, it's not great. Um, it's got, uh, Um, Klaus Kinski as uh, Renfield, but he basically spends the whole movie in a padded cell. Okay. So uh, not great, but, should... but the 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 editorial here is pretty good. Yeah. So we should probably talk about the last story, um, written yes. by a writer we just got done talking about, Steve Gerber. Yep. Uh, Steve Gerber, uh, pencils by Rick Buckler, and anchor is Pablo Marcos. The title is To Walk Again in Daylight. It starts in late 19th century Vienna. Dracula seeks out a Dr. Dumont, whose research could help break the Count's vampiric curse. He confronts the doctor, who agrees to help, provided Dracula promises not to kill him. First, the vampire is sent to retrieve papers that Dumont claims were stolen from him. Dracula finds the papers, but the owner of the house confronts him, only to fall victim to Dracula's vampiric thirst. Upon receiving the papers, Dumont reveals himself to be a fraud, unable to cure vampirism. He holds Dracula at bay with a cross, planning to experiment on Dracula's corpse after dawn breaks. Dracula is able to make eye contact, and he compels Dumont to drop the cross. Dracula bites the doctor, but not to feed. Instead, he passes on his curse to Dumont, condemning him to an eternity of undeath. So, again, I think this was another fun story, although I did um, kind of see the ending coming. Yeah, this one is probably the closest to, like the old-fashioned horror comics, Tales from the Crypt kind of twist-ending story. In fact, there actually was a backup in one of our previous issues where 
you have a guy who's horrendously ugly and only one plastic surgeon can save him. So he's robbing people to be able to afford the plastic surgeon. And he ends up killing a guy in um, an attempt to rob him and only finds out when looking to his wallet afterwards that it was the plastic surgeon who could save him. Right, right. It's it's and it, that's, that's it is basically a, what happens here. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a cliche ending. What saves it is there's some fantastic Rich Buckler artwork, Pablo Marcus Absolutely. inks, and really Steve Gerber's scripting is, you know, if not original, at least strong. Yeah, no, he's he's good at putting words in Dracula's mouth. It's a it's a fun story. I I will say in terms of looking at the sort of uh, selective use of red um, from story to story, this one has the weakest. I was actually just about to say it does the most with that. Well, it, it, it uses it a lot. Like that, there's a whole page that's got lots of red in it. I just don't know that it's used as effectively on that page. Like it just seems sort of random. I suppose. Now, I I will say I really like the red on the close-up of the eyes at the bottom of the prologue. Mm-hmm. That's, like, that... The the way Dracula is drawn in that prologue reminds me of the Christopher Lee Dracula. Although, if we're going to talk about close-ups of eyes, we could talk about the one on page 71 where Dracula is hypnotizing the scientist, um, and his eyes turn into Batman symbols. <laughs> this is true. Well, that's also, that's what happens, that's what's in Dracula's eyes on that page that's red. His eyes are bats. True, but they're not Batman but, symbols, but, which... Right, no, in, in, in the in the close-up of the Doctor, they are they are straight up the logo that is on Batman's chest. Right. And I actually, there's a bit of artwork from, I think, like the 90s or something of the Joker with Batman eyes. And I think it's like an ad for a Batman video game. But that ad was everywhere in the 90s when that, I think it was a game for the NES was coming out. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that's immediately what I think of. Like, my very weird memory goes straight to those (laughs) ads. So that kind of took me out of story for a second there. So, of these three stories in this issue, which is our strongest story? I think probably my favorite is the Roy Thomas story. The one with Charity Brown. Yeah. I would agree. I think that's our strongest I, I don't think story. any of them is I don't think any of them is bad. No. Um, but if I had if I had to rank them, I'd say the Charity Brown story, then the Dracula in Manhattan story, and then the uh Dracula with the fake doctor story. Right. I, I, I will give the Dracula and Manhattan story accolades just because it is a lot of fun to see Dracula getting high off of feeding off junkies. Yeah. No, well, it sort of reminds me of some of the, uh, like, 70s horror films that sort of came out of this wave, like uh, like The Return of Count Yorga and stuff like that. I do, which are very, which are, or even um, Dracula A.D. 1972, which took the Christopher Lee Dracula of the Hammer continuity and placed him in 1970s London, where he had to fight an ancestor of Van Helsing. 
Right. It, it's it's just a lot of fun to see how they use 1970s New York in this story. Absolutely. And, and the way that, like, clearly they know the area well enough to name drop locations and to really capture the feeling for certain neighborhoods. Yeah. Which, based on some of the um, carousing we've heard of, on the behalf of the Marvel writers of this time is not that surprising. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, these were all good stories. I'm not sure how sustainable this magazine format was, but, but I kind of like it. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I don't think a waste of your 75 cents. By any means. No, no. I even think, even with the reprint stories. I think if I was a teenager and or adult of the 1970s and I picked up this magazine, I would have enjoyed it. And I was actually shocked to find the other day that they still make horror anthology magazines like this. They're not Marvel, but right, there right. are still people putting out um, newsprint horror anthology magazines I found one in a Barnes and Noble and I was shocked. Yeah. Every now and then you see stuff like that in the, the bookstores in their magazine section. I have not picked up any, but, but I I have seen that they're a thing that exists. Yeah. They're like five bucks now. Okay. That's still not terrible. That, that is cheaper than a lot of other magazines I've seen. Yeah. I was looking for the Joe Bob Briggs issue of Fangoria. I, I didn't find it. Oh no, it's out of print. It is completely out of print. Dang it. Yeah. Basically, if you're not a subscriber, it's really hard to get. Dang it. Dang it. Dang it. Hello, lovely listeners. If you'd like to give a gift to your favorite podcast host, (laughs) you can always send the Joe Bob Briggs issue of Fangoria to... Actually, I don't know what our address is here. um, Send a DM on the Twitter. We'll, we'll, We'll get back to you. Yeah. A, a, a mysterious man will come to your house at midnight. <laughs> um so I, I I think we've sort of covered what there is to cover in this first issue of Dracula Lives. Um do any sort of final thoughts on it? It's an interesting format. I'm very interested to see what other kind of stories we get from these magazines and Lovely listeners, if you want to hear us talk more about these magazines, let us know. And if you think maybe we should separate these into their own episodes, please let us know that as well. Um, because as it is, this is going to be a long episode because we've still got Werewolf by Night to talk about. Right. Um, speaking of, we should... Do we? Yeah. Oh, Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider. Sorry. <laughs> Not Werewolf by Night, Ghost Rider. We've got Ghost Rider to yes. talk about. Uh, Um, Right after this break. Yep, good segue. Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. 
People start pollution. People can stop it. Write for Pollution Booklet, Box 1771, Radio City Station, New York. Welcome back to Move Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Our last issue for this episode, before we get to that Captain Marvel spoilerific review, so please stay tuned, is Marvel Spotlight number 9, The Snakes Crawl at Night. The cover date on this one is April 1973. Writer is Gary Friedrich. Penciler is Tom Sutton. Inkler is Chick Stone. Letterer is uh, Shelley Lefferman. Editor is Roy Thomas. We resume where we left off last issue, with Ghost Rider falling to his death at the bottom of Copperhead Canyon. In the morning, back at the ranch, Roxanne and Mr. Casey wonder on the fate of Johnny Blaze. Casey assigns one of the ranch hands, Sam Silvercloud, to take Roxy back to the canyon to search for Johnny. Silvercloud is revealed to be working for Snake Dance, however, and kidnaps Rocky for sinister purposes. Meanwhile, at the bottom of Copperhead Canyon, Johnny Blaze awakens, miraculously unharmed. The reason for this is soon evident as Satan appears to Johnny and tells him that none are allowed to take his life but the Dark Lord. That night, Johnny reappears at the rodeo, only to find Roxy missing and their lame manager Slade attempting to take Johnny's place in the show. Johnny makes the change to Ghost Rider, lifting Slade from his bike, and then completes the show himself. After a failed stunt, Ghost Rider spots Sam Silvercloud in the crowd, and suspecting he most knows something about Roxy's disappearance, corners the ranch hand and forces him to confess. Roxy has been kidnapped as part of some mystical ritual being performed by Snake Dance. Ghost Rider arrives too late as Roxy is bitten by the Magic Man's twin poison serpents. The Spirit of Vengeance easily defeats Snake Dance and his followers, promising as he rides off to seek medical attention from Roxy that if the girl dies, he'll be back. Oof. Yup. This was rough going. It was extremely rough going. And I think one of the first reasons for that is we don't have Mike Plug in this issue. No, the the art in this is not as good. Nowhere near as good. It it kind of looks... Honestly, it looks ra- like rather than a flaming skull, it is a flaming skull mask that Ghost Rider yeah, is wearing. Yeah, he looks like he's wearing a... a- he looks like he's wearing a mask or a helmet or something most of the time. Right. Like, there isn't that sense they were watching some kind of creep, creepy thing in the supernatural. And I'm wondering, I mean, did this artist not realize that that's what he was? Or um, the artist here being um, Tom Sutton. Yeah. And honestly, it almost, it kind of looks rushed. Like, there's some... There are some pages with smaller figures and panels where it just looks like a rush job. Like the detail work on the Ghost Rider's face, things like that. Just nothing quite looks right. Okay. Oh, for um, he was the first story artist of the popular character Vamprella. Oh, that's interesting. So, do we start with the offensive racism or do we go into the other problems that it has 
We should probably start with the racism. Because this is a racist comic, y'all. Racist AF. Um, uh, Johnny Blaze at one point refers to the Native Americans as, quote, red-skinned devils. Yeah, and... And says that he needs, and says that he needs to desecrate their holy lands. He blows up their holy lands. Yeah, he does. In the last, yeah, last page, he throws, he blows it up with hellfire. Yeah, yeah. And how often are we going to see a white woman menaced by natives? Yeah, it's not good. And it, it's something that happened a lot in popular culture before this and definitely was a thing at the time. But that doesn't excuse it. It's just, it's cliche. It was cliche back then, and it's offensive. Yeah. Especially because I strongly believe we're going to get a Scooby-Doo-type twist in the next issue where Snake Dance is going to end up being Casey and Blackface. Mm. Red face, I, I guess see this that. would be. Yeah, and if that, that's, that's going to be unfortunate extremely unfortunate i mean i haven't looked at the next issue in this story to see if that is the case but i I, i'm feeling it's the case yeah yeah um (sighs) also there's just on top of that problematic base layer of this story there's also just a series of really strange decisions and coincidences yes like bart slade coming out of nowhere oh and he's lame now right right which okay i i actually devoted some thought to bart slade because i apparently have nothing better to do with my life um would slade have been more interesting if he had been roxy's brother like i mean it would make him a character that I could potentially care about. Like, there'd be a reason to have him around. Uh, and, right. like, think about this way. You could do it like he was spurned by his father because he was lame and hence couldn't ride the motorcycles in the shows. And then they get Johnny being the adopted son and the favored son, as it were, because he can ride a motorcycle. He can participate in the shows. So not only is his sister in love with this dude... And not only is this dude um, loved by his father, but he could do the thing that Bart always wanted to do and never could do because right. of his disability, um, carry on the family legacy. And Yeah, that what you're describing is an actual character. Yes. And here, he's like, oh, he's this crippled, I guess now apparently crippled to where we have never gotten any reference whatsoever to him being lame in any shape, way, shape, or form. Not that I can remember. No. And apparently he wants to be in the show now, too. Right. So. Um, it doesn't really make sense. Um, it All it does is give one more sort of conflict to get in the way of things in the middle of the story. Yeah. Um, also, it seems like Satan's logic is a little bit dubious. Yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let anyone else kill you because I wanna kill you. 
then why not go ahead and do it then? Like, I feel like there is a really easy solution to that. Yeah, and I there's a... Okay, there is a letter in the letters column, which may be, in fact, the best thing about this entire story, where the reader okay. kind of takes the takes them to task about this comic. And hold up, let me get to it. Dear Stan, Gary, Mike, and Roy, I hated the first few issues of Ghost Rider, but Marvel Spotlight number 7 was a bit better. I may even end up liking this new feature, though I doubt it. There are a few basic objections I have. First, and most importantly, I don't feel you've given us a satisfactory reason why Satan can't take the soul of Johnny Blaze. Are you saying he can't take the soul of anyone who is loved by someone? That would make Satan particularly impotent. Practically impotent. Or is Satan helpless only in the presence of true love? That might be a little better, but it still doesn't explain why Satan couldn't have taken Mr. Blaze's soul on one of the many occasions where Roxanne wasn't with him. Like, you know, that scene in the canyon. That's me, not the letter. Satan has a rich literary background, and I'm not going to say you're following all that is set up. But if you are going to have a Satan character, he should be powerful. Very powerful. Your Satan is not. Johnny Blaze receives his powers from Satan, so surely the master of the underworld must be more powerful than Johnny. I suppose you could say Johnny represents good, and good is more powerful than evil, but by selling his soul to the devil, Johnny Blaze is corrupted himself. It is very hard to make someone who sells their soul a vision of purity. <coughs> Spider-Man! Excuse me. Um, <laughs> which brings me to another point. Traditionally, black magic can't be used for good. Ghost Rider should eventually find his powers turning against him. Hold on, man. You're writing a more interesting comic than they are. I think your <laughs> big mistake was in the original agreement Johnny made. There should have been a loophole he could have used to free himself. As it was, the only loophole was written in by Satan. Richard Nathan, uh, Van Nuys, California, 91401. Um, I mean, that sort of covers a lot of the, the ground right there. Um, I will say, um, in Marvel's defense, they eventually figure out that they had made their Satan too weak, and that's when they start retconning him into being a different demon. True. Which, you know, is a good reason for a retcon, I suppose. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, he, he's kind of right. Um, there is just a lot. <sighs> also, um, where did the helicopter come from? Yeah, I kind of forgot to mention the helicopter in my summary. Because Johnny Blaze is rescued from the canyon by a guy in a helicopter whom Johnny Blaze does not know and who does not seem to have been looking for Johnny Blaze. I guess maybe he's just a guy who does helicopter tours? I, I guess, but all I know is he saves Johnny Blaze and Blaze promises to give him tickets to the show. Yeah. Just, uh, again, another weird coincidence that didn't seem necessary. I mean, it, it it gets him back to the show in time for his performance. Right. Which is all they're looking to do there. Which, I'll forgive it for that. Um, and I know that we're not supposed to like Bart Slade because he's being a jerk. But I feel like Johnny Blaze in Ghost Rider form, clotheslining 
a guy with a bad leg just is inappropriate. And Bart Slade even says, oh, I'm going to tell the whole world how you're beating up on a cripple. Right. Which, I mean, he's... As much of a jerk as Slade is, he's kind of right there. I mean, Johnny can make the argument he's trying to save Slade's life, I suppose. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that is... And that's fair, because apparently even Johnny Blaze with the powers of a Ghost Rider could not complete that final stunt, so... Which, I guess their rationale for why it failed is he was distracted. Right, well, because it's right around that point where he sees... Um, what's his name? The the guy that... Uh, stranded him in the first place. Yeah, but they don't mention that at all before the accident. It's just... No, it's... Yeah, he, it's after he crashes and he's recovering that he sees, oh, wait a minute, it's that guy from earlier. Right. And, I mean, um, if, if they had mentioned that there was some kind of sabotage that taking place, that, I think, would have made a lot more sense. Yeah. Although they pulled that last issue. True. It's almost as if there aren't a lot of story opportunities in centering around a evil Knievel ripoff character. Yeah, at least not if you're going to focus on his day job. Exactly. Also, um, panel uh, bottom two-thirds of page 21, I guess. Uh, it's it's where uh, Roxanne is tied up to the snake statue and uh, Snake Dancer is coming at her with the twin snakes. Yeah. Um, Swap out the Native Americans uh, for Baron Samdi, and you've got the climax of Live and Let Die. (laughs) That makes that better. (laughs) Live and Let Die. Okay, let's talk about that scene for a second. Because is it just okay. me, or is the next page, does it look like the snakes just bit her bonds? It kind of does. Like, it does not look like the snakes are biting her. It looks like they're biting where the um, ropes the are ropes tying are. her hands. Yep, that is indeed what it looks like. I'm going to chalk that up again to problematic art. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, like, this is a symptom of the Marvel method. Which, listeners, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Marvel method. Uh, The way it works is the writer will give the artist a rough outline of the story. And the artist will then write out the, like, draw out the pages. And then it will go back to the writer to add dialogue. Right. And I'm wondering if, you know, there was a different intention that the writer had here. Like, maybe the writer... Or maybe the artist thought, okay, there could be a um, example of sabotage here. Because um, actually, if you think about it, oh crap! Look it at, would be in this. It would be in his benefit for her to survive. Look at eighteen. Look at the second to last panel on eighteen. Yep. He spots Sam Silvercloud. But it's not mentioned in the caption. At all. Right. I think it's supposed to be that 
he spots Sam Silvercloud, gets distracted, and ends up crashing. Right. I I I, I think you're right. That that makes a lot more sense. Which, yeah. Okay. Since we're here here anyway, he makes ridiculously quick work of these um, cultists in this issue. Yeah. Like it's barely a fight. It's it. It points out the fact that this should not have been a fight last issue. Right, right. Yeah, like he he literally just makes a wall of fire and they're all out of the way. Yes. And then... And then he burns everything down. Yep, burns everything down and rides off Roxy while Snake Dance says, No, wait, you must stay here. I can help you. Which, I don't know right. where they're going to go with that. It, I... Your guess is as good as mine, because this book has not made sense for several issues now. No. And, uh... And I'm, I'm really kind of annoyed that this arc is going into a part three instead of starting something new. Yeah. I, I honestly don't feel this arc has enough steam in it for a part three, but here we go. Right. Well, I guess it's really part two and a half since it started halfway through the previous issue. Yeah. But that's still too much. This could have been a one-off. Really, it shouldn't have happened at all because it's offensive and bad, but if they were going to do it, it could have been a one-off. Yeah. We should make a counter of how many times Roxy is used as a sacrifice in these issues. Because <laughs> I think this is, what, the the second time? Uh, at least, yeah. And, like, the previous time was the first story. So in the second story that goes right appears in, yep, she's gonna be a sacrifice in this one. Is she gonna be a sacrifice in all of them? Because so far, it's only happened to Liza and Werewolf by Night once. Right. But now that she knows the secret of her brother's curse, that, that could change. Yeah, now that she knows that her brother is the werewolf, it might start... Uh, happening more often right so um i i think we could agree this is the weakest comic we've looked at this episode yeah in in every conceivable way yeah the 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 first two are a lot of fun that the the man thing issue is a lot of fun it is Dracula lives. It's inconsequential to our overall story, but the stories were moody. They're atmospheric. They they're invocative, and they were fun too. And and again, making Dracula into the antihero instead of the villain is kind of an interesting twist on telling Dracula stories. Right, and and then there was Ghost Rider. Yeah, then there's Marvel Spotlight number nine. Um, not the most inspiring of issues. And it doesn't even have Plug to recommend it. Which I'm guessing at this point he was probably so busy with Werewolf by Night and Frankenstein. Yeah, that they went for the one that people would care less about, which obviously is going to be Ghost Rider. Right. Not, no offense. It didn't have its own book yet. Yeah, no offense meant to our Ghost Rider friends out there. No, um, I, I like Ghost Rider as a concept and as a character, um, but we have not really gotten to the Ghost Rider that I like yet. No. 
So we'll get there soon. I hope. Yeah. So what do you say we take a break and then maybe come back and uh, talk a little bit about uh, some movies? Yep. We'll be right back after these messages. And we're back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And uh, to wrap things up, we're going to look ahead to our next episode. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, Monster of Frankenstein number three, Tomb of Dracula number eight, and Werewolf by Night number five. Um, so we've got a pretty solid episode there coming up that I'm looking forward to. Hope you are too. Um, and uh, while we've got you here... Uh, we want to encourage you to please uh, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Um, we're at both of those as Tomb of Ideas. Um, you can also review us on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Um, please, we, we appreciate the star reviews, but what we really, really love is feedback. So tell us what you think. Um, let us know what segments you like best. Um, especially as we introduce new stuff like the magazine segments. Um, give us some feedback. Let us know how it's going. And uh, we, uh, if it's something that, uh, uh, that you really want us to, to talk Ready? about, we might even bring it up on the Higher, air. Higher, further, faster, baby. Please, and please, we really want to hear from you guys. Um, you are the reason we do this. So, if want to skip out now we won't be offended we are going to go ahead again for a more spoiler rifted discussion of Captain Marvel that's it for the Marvel horror portion of the podcast um, it's been lovely seeing you and we'll see you next episode yep if if you've not seen Captain Marvel now's the time that, that we can say goodbye um, please do come back and listen though once you've seen the movie because I think you might like our discussion Right. Or, you know, not like it, depending on your point of view. <laughs> Fair enough. But, um, I'm pretty sure having a degree in movies means I'm always right, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I'm a teacher, so I'm always right, too. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So, if you're checking out now, have a great rest of your evening. We'll see you next time. And if you're still here, great. Let's talk about some spoilers. Okay. So, one of the things that surprised me about the movie, but that I the more I think about it, the more I like it, is framing the Skrulls as refugees. Yeah. Um, and I think... I've seen a lot of people have been like, oh, that they've ruined the Skrulls now. They're just all going to be good guys now. I'm like, no... That was one subset of scrolls. Mm -hmm. You know, we've not seen like you know the super scroll or right um, Leisure the Laser Fist. Although was or, Telos's or the scroll queen be... is Telos's daughter Leisure the Laser Fist? 
Um, I don't know. Okay, because I, I I just bring that up because there's that scene at the end where um, Monica Rambo is talking to the little girl scroll about don't change your eyes i love your eyes and mm-hmm. i'm thinking like is there something significant about their eyes i need to be paying attention to or is there a reason they're foreshadowing the eyes so much huh i i don't know what up Lija the laser fist Lija. i mean it, it is worth noting that uh when she was posing as uh, alicia masters in the comics she wore contacts Okay, no, they don't mention um, uh, Talos as her father. I thought there was some relationship there, but, you know, I guess not. Um, which is which is good, because I think a relationship with her and Johnny Storm, whenever he shows up in the MCU, would be kind of awkward. Right. Um, well, it is all, it's also interesting, since you mentioned uh, Talos... Uh, isn't the comics version of Talos initially unable to shapeshift? I can't remember. I'm not to that point in my Fantastic Four reading yet. Okay. I'm some point in the 70s. Because he was, he was like a cyborg or something instead. That sounds right. He He's definitely a baddie. Yeah, yeah. He was Talos the Untamed. Yep, yep. Which, you know, another kind of a scroll baddie who, if it isn't the Super Scroll, I really don't, if it isn't the Super Scroll or Lasia, I really don't know them. Yeah, well, and again, like, there's, I guess, like, like, we haven't seen anything of the scroll hierarchy, you know, like the scroll Queen or anything like that. Right, and I think a lot of people are like, oh, they ruined the scrolls. they had such potential as villains. Like, you could still have bad scrolls, just because this... Well, especially, especially given that they don't have a homeworld, which means they're scattered, which means there's going to be all different sects and groups. Yeah, which, I, again, I don't think we can rule out other scrolls showing up um, and being baddies or especially for like say the fantastic right. four right and uh, especially to if that end I... people mm-hmm. to that end people are already speculating that maybe uh nick fury in the present is a scroll um because in age of ultron he eats a sandwich that's cut diagonally really <laughs> somebody noticed that yeah that's insane I love fans sometimes. <laughs> they notice stuff like that. Now, to be fair, he breaks it into he breaks it off. Like he doesn't actually take a bite of it while it is t- purely in triangular form. Like he tears it and then eats it. Wow. Although that's strong evidence. Right. <laughs> that is that is wow. Nice. Um, Although I think they would have noticed that in that scene where he dies and comes back from the dead. Right. Although now I can't be sure. Um, right. Um, also, so, true or false, Captain Marvel 
is the best movie version of Green Lantern ever. Oh yeah. Ace 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 test pilot abducted by aliens turns into a superhero, comes back home. Mm, yeah. I could see that. Okay, let me ask you something for a second. Mhm. Should we engage in some in, um some in-game speculation? Okay, sure. Is Captain Marvel the perfect replace replacement for Iron Man and Captain America when they die in the next movie? I don't know for sure that they're both going to die, but I don't think it's a one-to-one replacement. I think that she will especially fill in a lot of the same sort of team dynamic that Tony Stark does. Not exactly, Mm -hmm. but but some similarity. Um, I would not be surprised if... um, Bucky or maybe Falcon end up taking the Captain America spot. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I do think they they are very much setting up Carol to not in abilities necessarily, although sort of, but but mostly in tone to take the role of a Tony Stark. Um, she 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 has that. She has that sort of rebellious, um, sarcastic kind of personality that that feels similar to Stark. Yeah, but she also has the sincerity of Steve. Yeah, no, that, that's that's the the difference, I guess, is that she is because she, like Steve, she comes from. A very selfless military background, I guess. Yeah. It'll be interesting. It will be. It, but um, but I, again, really liked the movie. Um, I thought that the way they handled her origin was really smart um, by sort of using her fragmented memories to their advantage in, in telling the story. Mm-hmm. Um, that we sort of didn't have to learn everything in chronological order, which was nice. We should probably talk about the other thing that people are going to have a huge problem with with the movie. I and mean, you tweeted about this. Right, I and I, I alluded to it. I didn't actually specify what it was I was talking about because, again, I don't like to spoil things for people. But yeah. since I have a platform here where I can talk and people listen sometimes, I will I will go ahead and talk about it now. Um Nick Fury loses his eye in this movie. We see how he loses his eye. Um, and there is a certain subsection of fans that are very unhappy with the circumstances of Nick Fury losing his eye. Um, they are going to say that it's because it's an insult to the character and that um, it does not fit the their imagining of what that character is supposed to be. I would argue that those people are just unwilling to let things be fun sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know what they expected. Yeah, well, and the thing is, they tease injuries to his eye throughout the movie. It happens more than once. And after the first time and it and it wasn't what caused him to lose his eye, I knew that they were setting us up for a swerve. 
Like, I feel like some of these guys expected Wolverine to pop up in the last bit of the story and slash his eye like Ultimate Nick Fury. And I'm just like, that wasn't going to happen, guys. Right. Well, and he's... And it wasn't going to be any kind of war injury because we weren't... We're just not going to see that aspect of his career right now. No. And honestly, I don't think any kind of big heroic action scene would be able to satisfy this version of Nick Fury as being worth it. No, no. Well, and and on top of all that, what we end up with is in its own way really appropriate. Not so much in the actual what happens. So, so, again, we're we're talking spoilers. Um, The Flurgan, the alien cat, scratches his eye. Yes. Um, and damages it to the point that he loses sight. Um, but what I like, ev- that's funny. I think that is funny. It is perfectly fine within the context of this movie. Yeah. It fits the tone. Um, but even setting that aside, what I love even more is at the very end of the movie, it becomes clear through dialogue with Coulson that how Fury lost his eye in the alien battle is becoming this urban legend within the halls of shield. Yeah. And he's letting that story mature. He's letting it spread around. And also what I like because that's totally because that's totally what Nick Fury would do. Yeah. He doesn't get rid of the Flurgan. No. Well, he it keeps has a tesseract. <laughs> well, that I suppose that is important. It has a tesseract, <laughs> but you know, he gives it a nice and little bed. And also several scrolls. And he doesn't like he doesn't seem to hold any ill will towards it. No, well, it's it's like I, I was telling someone the other day. It's sometimes cats scratch you, like you hold it the wrong way, or it doesn't want to be held, or whatever. It, it's going to scratch. It's your own dumb fault. It's, it's not bec- not because it's mad at you. It's just because it's a cat. Yeah. But yeah, that was his own dumb fault losing his eye like that. Yep. And people kept on warning so, him about, you know, the Flurgan, and I imagine its claws are poisonous. Mm. I, I see. I thought maybe that somehow the scratch had become infected or something. Yeah, you mess with an alien, Nick. You got, you got what you deserved. Yep. I honestly, I hope that Goose is waiting for him when he gets unsnapped. Me too. I, it'd be great if Goose shows up in Endgame. I agree. I agree. Like, there is no reason Goose should not still be alive. We don't know how long Flurgans live. Exactly. They could be immortal. Mm-hmm. And one of the nice things about, you know, um, cats is they can just hire new cats. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, I thought... The special effects in this were good. Um, I thought that the... Uh, it's... It's honestly not heavy-handed in its thematics. They're there. There, there is very much this sort of, uh, like, empowerment uh, vibe to uh, Carol as a character as she grows over the course of the, the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I don't think it's done in a way that is preachy you know like it's part of the story and it's a part of the story that makes sense yeah 
we should probably talk about Jude Law's character um, for a yeah. second. And Marvell. Right. I think a lot of people speculated that Jude Law was going to end up being secretly Marvell in this movie. That was that was reported for at one point by uh, some of the uh, sort of online comics movie speculators and outlets that that, that was what was going to happen. Um, Which... I I actually like what they did better. Yeah, I do too. Um, with Marvel ending up being a scientist played by, oh goodness, what's the actress's name? Was it uh, Annette Benning? Annette Benning, thank you. Um, yeah, Annette Benning showing up. Who, who also appears as the Supreme Intelligence. Yes. Uh, because the Supreme Intelligence takes the form of someone you admire. And I guess mm-hmm. uh, Carol admired Marvell. But I like that they kept right. Marvell in the story. And I like that they kept the secret identity from his earliest appearances of Dr. Lawson. I bet you like that. <laughs> Can you blame me? <laughs> Wait, are you a Cree spy? No. But that's what you'd say if you were a Cree spy. I'm going to need to cut you and see you bleed. I'm, I'm not okay with that. Yeah, I'll do it while you're sleeping. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but yeah, that making Marvel fairly integral to the story, but without being there in the present, I think was a really smart move. Yeah. And like, like Marvel is someone from even further in the past. Right. Now I know some people are going to complain that they gender swap Marvel, but I don't care. Yeah, it was fine. Marvel's an alien. Yeah, Marvel's an alien, right. Why are you worried about alien junk? What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, and, and I appreciated that uh, when, um, when Carol lets Monica Rambeau re- reskin her costume, recolor her costume, that it cycles through two or three of the other Captain Marvel color schemes. Yes. Including one that looked vaguely like the Ms. Marvel colors. Yeah. That was good. Because um, I think you get one of you get one of the other green variants where it's the green and the, the white. Yeah. Um, and then there was one that was um, the, the black and gold that she wore for a long time as Ms. Marvel. I think... And then finally settling on the current look. Yeah. And her interactions with Monica and Maria Rambeau were honestly the highlights of the movie, in my in my opinion. Oh, they were awesome. That they were Monica and Maria Rambeau are great in that movie, and I kind of want to see Spectrum show up at some point. Well, I hope that's what they're setting up, and they'll keep like a contract with that young actress. So she was great. Yeah. 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 Um, and I appreciated that, uh, Maria's call sign on her jet, uh, is Photon. Yep. Yep. And... Which, yep. which, if you're, if you're not sure what we're talking about, Monica Rambeau is, um, the second Captain Marvel? She yes. Was the, she was the second Captain Marvel, I think. Second Marvel Captain Marvel. Um, 
Right, right. Um, and she went went on to become leader of the Avengers as Captain Marvel. Um, but then when other Captain Marvels showed up, other Captains Marvel, I guess, showed Genis. up. Uh, Genis Vell. Genis Vell was the next one. Um, she changed her code name out of deference uh, and went by Photon for a while. But then one of the Kree heroes started going by Photon, so she changed to, was it uh, Pulsar? No. She was Photon. She was something else. She's Spectrum now. Uh, now she's Spectrum, yeah. Um, Which I imagine is but what she did, they'll call her. Um, but she's gone through four or five code names. Yeah. Because other, because other characters kept taking her code name. Which kind of sucks. It really does. Really does. But she she is an awesome character. Um, and I thought that in in its own way, this movie did a good job of representing why she's a good character. Yes, definitely. Uh, um, we should probably talk about um, Stan's cameo. Oh, gosh. Well, so before we even get to the cameo... Um, it's the first time that I have ever teared up at the sight of a studio fanfare. Yeah. It was rough. That they did the whole studio fanfare instead of images from comics or Marvel heroes and movies. It was all cinematic appearances of Stan Lee. So did people applauding your theater? Absolutely they did. They tried to not applaud in my theater, but then I started clapping, so other people started clapping. It's, it's... no, there, there. It, I was, I was there opening night Thursday, and there was applause. Good, good, yeah. Um, and then of course he actually cameos, um, and he is, um, learning his lines for Mallrats. Yes. Oh, I love that so much, and like. They had Kevin Smith in tears. Yeah, yeah. The, Kevin Smith has posted his reaction to having seen the movie online, and it's it's one of the most sincere, tender things I've seen in a while. Now, is like, it he just seemed the genuinely moved. Do what? Is it just a picture, or is he like done a podcast or something? Um, um I think he did a podcast. So I, I've seen quotes. So, ooh, I might need to go check um, that out because because. Because he, he says something like, uh, after all of these years of referencing Marvel comics in my own works, to have a Marvel movie reference me is something special. Yeah. Yeah. And I can understand being moved to tears by that, because, you know, if somebody pops out a Tomb of Ideas reference in a movie, we're... <laughs> we're we we, we yep. might explode. We would, we would explode. Yep. Um, uh, it's, uh, it was a good cameo. But yeah. It was And very, she gives him a little was, smile. It was, it was so cute. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a good one. That, you kind of, the, the, the Stan cameos tend to fall into two categories. The, the funny ones and the sweet ones. And this was one of the sweetest. Yeah. And I like that he was playing himself. Right, right. Which, as in Marvel Comics, Stan Lee exists in the Marvel Universe. Yes. And so does Kevin Smith and Mallrats. And, I mean, 
I guess that conversation in Mallrats is somewhat different because you're not referencing sure. the thing's junk. Except they might be. Maybe? See, my brain is now going to, like, what is the MCU version of Clerks, sorry, Mallrats like? And what is the right. MCU version of Marvel Comics like as well? I, that's the thing. is are, Do they bring up Superman and Batman is the question. Yeah, so many questions now we must have answered. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, were there any other sections of the film that, that sort of stood out to you as... as needing discussion no, or, well, or we, that, that we haven't covered we talked about goose being awesome uh we talked about it, yeah, how it felt which... like a 90s film yep um, um the rambos are great the rambos are great no i think we've discussed it yeah um, uh, and and again i just i i personally as someone who's never been particularly attached to carol in the comics like i i don't have anything against her no she's a fine character but i just know her from appearances in team books for the most part right um, i know her from appearances in avengers yeah um uh, and and a little bit of the cosmic stuff um but i really liked this version of carol danvers and i am looking forward to seeing more of that character yeah, I, I mean, I'm fairly certain we're not going to get the alcoholic version of Carol Danvers that we saw during the Busick-Perez run. Right. Well, just like we didn't get the alcoholic version of Tony Stark. Right. I don't think they're going to touch on that, which honestly is fine. I think the, the character of Carol Danvers, just like the character of Tony Stark, has moved past that. That it really doesn't need right. to be showcased in a Marvel film. Right. Tony has his own problems, dear God. Sure, and, and there's plenty you can do with Carol without having to go there. Yeah. Um, so, I think I think no, be, I I yeah I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with Carol in the Marvel universe from here. What her role is in Endgame. I think her showing up like this kind of puts the um, puts to bed the talk about them doing a '60s Fantastic Four movie. And then having them show up in the modern day because I think that's maybe too many um, characters coming to prominence in a previous decade and showing up in the modern day. Maybe, possibly, possibly, yeah, um, yeah. That there are other ways of handling introducing those characters that I think they could do. Um, we'll see, um, but. Uh, but yeah, I think probably doing two of those lost in time type things would maybe be too much. It, especially since we already have Cap. Right, right. Yeah, the, the whole team can't be lost in time. <laughs> yeah. It's, that, 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 yeah, that would be weird. So, but again, I just really was happy with the movie. I having nothing really in expectations beyond knowing that I liked Marvel movies in general. Yeah. Um, I, I was impressed. And I think what, what people are not talking about, um, is not just the way that this will build sort of the Avengers movies by adding Carol into the mix, but also the way that it's maybe helping to expand some of the cosmic stuff going forward. 
by elaborating on Cree politics and the status of the Skrulls and, and all of that. Which I think is places they can kind of expand on in sequels as well. Especially since Absolutely, yeah. ap- apparently we're not getting a Guardians of the Galaxy 3 for a long time. Possibly. I mean, they they keep going back and forth on how far into development it is, but yeah. You know what would be interesting? I'm What's thinking that? possibly they may be doing a thing where they're waiting for Endgame to come and go. And they're waiting for Suicide Squad two to come in, come out, and go and see how that's received. Right. And I think they may rehire James Hunt, James Gunn. It's possible. I, I would not be opposed to it. Um, I mean, I hope they do. And and it would be ideal since they since they never back down from using a script. Yes. Like, they're still planning to use his story no matter what, so. I don't know. Maybe that's just me dreaming. It would be nice. We'll see what happens. It's all a long way off at this point, so. Speaking of dreaming, I think it is time for all little good little um, two believers to go to bed. Um, get, get. So, for those of you who stuck with us through this discussion, thank you. We appreciate it. Yes. Um, let us know your thoughts uh if you've seen the movie um we we love discussing this kind of stuff based on the box office numbers i was seeing most people have right so yeah um hit us up on twitter let us know what you thought uh if if uh anything that we've talked about has uh brought up ideas that you wanted to discuss uh we're always happy to engage send us emails uh, Yes, please. Uh, what's that email address again? Tombofideas at gmail.com Yes, please. Write to us. We're, we're a podcast, so we don't have a letters page, but if it's a good one, we'll read it on the air and respond. Even if it's not a good one, we'll probably still read it. <laughs> Heck. There is no shame here, sell us, as someone once we, said. We will read your penis enlargement ad on the air. I, I will not do that. That will be James. <laughs> anyway, Tomb Believers, uh, until next time, farther, faster, crap, what's the line? Higher, further, faster. Yeah, that. Good night. <laughs> Good night, everyone. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tumblers Excelsior! <laughs>